we're doing now. It's still the same. Feel good. Good. So today we're doing another podcast episode. For those who don't know, this is Steven Estelle. This is the CEO and founder of Estelle Ingenuity. And today we're going to do a joint podcast episode. And today I have Mark James. Welcome. Thank you, Steven. So awesome. So Mark James, just so we go over, can you tell us the podcast that you are connected with and the one that we are partnering up today with Estelle Ingenuity? Yeah, so the podcast I normally do is uh, Connectomics. Nice, nice. And it's here in association with OIST. Um, yeah, and we look at questions related to embodied cognitive science generally and its intersection with design, technology, culture, all of those things. Nice. And just so people can have a nice overview, where do you play in this role of embodiment in all these different fields? Uh, I'm a philosopher and a, a theoretical cognitive scientist. Um, I'm stig- still figuring out what that means myself. But okay, okay. <laughs> it's uh, not a particularly well-defined role, but maybe that's part of the, the value and the beauty of it. Um, yeah, I do the philosophy of embodied cognitive science on a, a bunch of different topics, broadly speaking, related to habit. Um, and I'm interested in how this kind of understanding can also inform our action in the real world. So how we shape our behavior, how we interact with our environments, how we interact with our technology, uh, the designed world in general. Um, Yeah. Nice. All right. Thank you. So then to go into today's topic, so you had a nice paper that was released and it started getting some pretty good attention with their fields online, looking at the institution level. And the title of the paper that you have is, Do Digital Hugs Work? Re-embodying Our Social Lives Online with Digital Tact. So before we jump into this, can you tell me what actually sparked the thought of writing this? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say like there was a single moment that sparked the thought of writing this particular paper. Mm. I, I guess like a lot of papers, you know, they evolve. <coughs> um, some of the ideas that initiated the paper might not even be in the paper. I can't even remember anymore. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know, so, so it's kind of a, a a living hole that evolves, and by the time you get to the finished piece, <coughs> I mean, sometimes you can trace the, the originary kind of moment, but not always. Uh, with this one... There's a bunch of, yeah, I could say there's a bunch of different threads that are kind of brought together uh, that all are are playing some seeding role in the ideas. But mm. um, broadly speaking, I would say, uh, or maybe if I was, you know, forced to pin it to a, to, to a moment or an experience, um, thinking about, uh, well, COVID happened, right? Right. Uh, we're all presented with this situation where, all of a sudden, we really had to appreciate the fact that we were 
uh, most of our social life was now online and somehow some of it and maybe more or less for different people was continuing right we like maintained our social lives even despite all the restrictions that were on us um mm. and some people seem to be doing it better and some people seem to be doing it worse and i was having a lot of conversations with people from different fields uh friends who were say festival managers who were now hosting art festivals online or uh, art teachers who were now doing all their art classes online and a lot of them having very different experiences and we started to appreciate that it wasn't just the technology right the technology was same the same for more or less everybody right uh, that's not entirely true right it's not perfectly evenly distributed but more or less everybody has access um more or less everybody I was talking to at least has access to a similar, say, repository of techn technological means. So like, you know, video calls and uh, WhatsApp and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so everybody's using the same technology, but people are having radically different experiences in these online spaces. So we started to kind of uh, just think about that, right? Th it seemed like there was an interesting question there. Like, if it's not the technology... What is it? And the kinds of approaches that we adopt uh, in, let's say, embodied cognitive science um, have a lot to do with how we produce meaning and how there's a multitude of dimensions that inform the production of any, say, meaningful experience. Okay. And we started to wonder, can this inform um, this diversity of experience that people are having online? Okay. No, that's a, that's a good way to go about it. <clears throat> so in the title you have, Do Digital Hugs Work? And I first want to ask you, when you hear the word digital hug, mm. what's the first thing that comes to mind? <laughs> and this could be a very, of course, vague, but what's the first thing that comes to mind? I mean, for me, having written this paper, a lot of things come to mind, right? So, okay. Um, but still, in a sense, maybe like some sort of hug emoji comes to mind. Okay, um, okay. And we didn't actually, we did include a reference to hug emojis in the paper, but it got taken out with a lot of stuff in the editorial really? preface. Okay. <laughs> I actually would have been a fan of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of stuff had to go, you yeah. know, a lot of stuff that I didn't really want to get rid of either, but that's, that's the kind of process of, mm. uh, of you know, reducing a paper to something that's uh, uh, reasonable. Um, but yeah, maybe that's still what comes to mind Uh in a kind of yeah, immediate sense. Um, I mean, what comes to mind for you? So, yeah, when I, was, when I was going over it, and the first thing that came to mind when I thought of a digital hug was, like, a good morning text that you get from, like, that special someone, right? You're, okay. You know, kind of like it makes you feel warm inside. Okay. Or, like... Um, I'm imagining when me and my friends or my family, when we play video games. Right. And it's different because not just playing a game, but like whenever I play video games online, I kind of see it as if I'm going to a virtual bar where we're having a conversation while maybe doing something. And during that activity, we will have, you know, these inside jokes that make you feel a certain way mm -hmm. that you feel you only could have with maybe people that you're really close with. Mm. So I kind of put all of that into this idea of a digital hug. It's like that feel-good feeling 
mm. over a digital space when in reality you're just by yourself looking at a screen. Mm. I mean, what you're saying perfectly describes what we tried to capture in this paper. Yeah. And it's it's like, you know, what you said about the morning hug or the morning text from that special someone. Yeah. Right? It's like the right thing at the right time in the right way, let's say. Mm. Um, or, yeah, the fact that you describe... Uh, something about the fami fami familiarity of the relationship that you have with the people that you play the games with, that there's, you know, a space you enter that transcends merely the material or physical space within which you're playing the game as such. And that uh, actually that's a kind of an emotional or effective space, right? That mm. I mean, I presume some of these people are in, in the States or whatever. Yeah, they're all back in the States for the most part. Right, so it's pretty incredible that you can open up a shared say, emotional space uh, or effective space between people who are, I mean, ostensibly worlds apart, at least geographically worlds apart. Right. And I think that's what makes it kind of very interesting because you can still have that feeling no matter where you are right. around the world. Right. So then kind of diving into the paper, there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about to get... Can I, can I just ask you one question? Go for it. So, like, in the in the example you describe... Mm. Presumably, there's kind of like patterns that have emerged in that space, that digital space, over yes. time. Yes. And it took you a while to actually be able to produce that feeling together in that space. Yes. So actually, I would say, so particularly the feeling came from like during COVID and, you know, you're locked inside. Mm. So we kind of turned towards playing video games on the weekend. And yeah, you do kind of start producing almost like a culture. Mm. where like for me and my friends so it's specifically it's me my cousin and then a friend mm. and because of the time difference i would play saturday morning friday night back in the united states mm. and it was quite literally like okay after work let's go to the bar kind of a feeling mm. and then you go there you wait until you see them online you get on hey how's your day you know <clears throat> x y and z and maybe for the first month of COVID and lockdown, the culture wasn't there yet. Mm. And then after a while, maybe like two months in, it's kind of like we get on typically for the first 10, 20 minutes. We kind of have like, hey, you know, how's, mm. how are things? You know, how are your family? Are you healthy? A check-in, I guess. Make sure you're doing good. And then that's when people would say like, yeah, you know, actually, you know, I'm not feeling too good. Mm. Or, you know, my cousin's father or somebody you know recently got sick and you know so we kind of spend the first moments I guess in the program or how we're doing it as kind of like checking in and then throughout playing games I mean you start building like these inside jokes that mm. then play a role later on mm. and then which is funny because those inside jokes then play into real life when you see them in person mm. which I thought's actually kind of cool and when it comes to like the like good morning texts, that's one of those things where, you know, I feel like, you know, you could look back and like maybe back in the younger years and you're like, oh, who's going to text good morning first? You know, I mean, but I think now it's just kind of like, for me, even though I enjoy receiving those good morning texts from, you know, very special people, I like to typically send it first because assuming that the receiver has the same feeling 
it's I like the feeling of being able to give that to somebody mm. that when you wake up, you know, somebody was thinking about you. Mm. And it's like the idea of like, you know, I like to, I guess, give the digital hug. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very like you can imagine something similar with a, with a letter, right? You write a letter. Yeah. And you you know how it's going to make the person feel and and you appreciate that. But there's something more immediate about the fact that if I send this text and they get it in the next few minutes, right, we're going to be somehow more coordinated in time uh, mm. around these feelings or something. But yeah, that's, I mean, you know, the intuitions you're sharing, it's, it's nice to hear them because I think they were exactly the types of things we were trying to capture in this paper. Nice. A- and, and by capturing them, you know, point out a few things about digital spaces that maybe people weren't so appreciative of. Well, c- c- certainly like people who, you know, know these spaces well, uh, gamers is a great example, mm. are very familiar with all of this stuff, right? But the kind of academic world and the embodied cognitive science community, um, because they value so much, let's say, co-located face-to-face interaction, uh, tended to be a little bit um, dismissive or maybe just uninterested in digitally mediated interactions and uh, didn't do a lot of work in that area. So we were trying to call attention to it and say, look, there's more going on here than maybe meets the eye. I like that. And I guess that kind of segues into the the first question I wanted to go into details about was the the word digital tact that Mm. you went over in your paper, Mm. which from my interpretation was like this tactical skill of maneuvering in the digital space. And I guess almost kind of like the, I don't want to say the, just being able to navigate personalities and social norms within either video games, Zoom. But could you kind of go over a little bit, what would you say about digital tact from your paper and then for people who never heard of this word before? How would yeah. you describe that? Well, let, let's let's kind of back up and, and think about tact and then eventually maybe get to the di- digital piece. <coughs> Excuse me. So... Um, there's a philosopher, I, Irish philosopher, uh, who writes about uh, matters related to embodiment as well, uh, Richard Kearney. And he had a book that came out um, around the start of the pandemic, or maybe it was a, a while, yeah, no, it was a while into the pandemic. It was a book on, on touch, so he was doing the, the philosophy of touch, let's say. Mm. And uh, he really wanted to say something like um, touch is a kind of undervalued sense in a, in, a, in a way that our world is what some people call like an oculocentric world where like we prioritize the image, right? Okay. Uh, and things we see, right? It, we kind of think as of sight as the primary sense um, and it certainly has uh, has a uh, a primary role, but uh, Kearney wanted to say something like touch is a foundational sense and any living organism is going to be, say, first uh, in touch with their environment. So for all organisms, touch is relevant. And for us too, it's it's actually primary. Anyway, he does a beautiful job in this 
book of uh, cashing out the value of touch and what it is and how we should understand it and how it shows up in our world and all of those things and in it he um, says something along the lines of um, when we think about touch though we don't have to think about it purely as say physical contact Mm. there's some sense in which you know i can touch your heart right yeah like i feel touched by this movie i'm touched by this movie yeah um i was i you know are you still in touch when you talk about people if they're still you know in contact like like connection right so there's more there's more than just like physical touch when we think about touch and then he when he thinks about that in the kind of social world um thinks about it in terms of tact and he says tact is more than just physical touch it's a kind of integration of all the senses into a certain type of sensitivity right that Mm. transcends uh, any particular sense and can also reach across uh, space and time so like tact when we think about it in its pure sense too means you know uh, tactile right Mm-hmm. Like kind of uh, there's something about the experience of the touching experience um, but he says like in kind of common usage of the notion of tact what we mean is a kind of handling uh, and kind of humoring of a social situation and the other people in it in a way that's like sensitive to their needs and the needs of the situation at large okay Right, so someone who has good tact, let's say, is generally somebody who's like sensitive to the context they're in, right? Sensitive to, say, the event that's unfolding, right? Mm. And sensitive to the reality that there's, say, another person in this situation with certain types of needs and desires and wants. And the more tact I have, the more I'm able to accommodate all of those things, right? Is this kind of like another way... Or another form of like EQ. That's a good way of thinking about it. Like, yeah. So yeah. Emotional intelligence yeah. type thing. Yeah, it kind of seems like that. Yeah, I think that's not a bad way of thinking about it. Um, the you know emphasis on tact here is to say it's still a kind of bodily operation, right? Mm. Like I'm sensitive to your body and how you're configured and its resonances with my body and um, you know what I can read from your body that suggests something about your, say, emotional state and all of that, right? Got you. And we tend to think about, like, tact in situations where, um, like, maybe there's no, like, perfect script about how this thing should go. Right? Yeah, it's like a messy dance that turns into something beautiful. In my right. That, and it, yeah, exactly. Like, there's a possibility for something here, and if it's handled well it could go well, right? Mm. But if it's bad, it could go bad. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's destructive. Yeah. I, we didn't get it in the paper, but I, I've <laughs> came across uh, somebody since who talks about, um, I forget his name now, I'm sorry, but he talks about pedagogical tact. And he basically says, tact is something like knowing what to do when you don't know what to do in a social situation. I like that. I, I The I way know, I, I wish view I, that, I wish yeah. I wrote it too. <laughs> I like that. I, I always view it as like, uh, the phrase I like is like surfing, where like, you just kind of go with the wave, even though it's kind of chaotic. You just kind of learn how to ride the chaoticness in a very elegant way. Yeah, I think there's a sense in which 
any skilled person has a kind of degree of tact with respect to the domain of their skill. Right. Um, so some people have that just in social life, right? Yeah. So like, what is it to be kind of skilled in social life? And, you know, it, it shows up differently in different contexts and all of that kind of thing. But the basic idea was, well, if tact is something that, um, you know, is, again, it's not my words, but is what you do when you don't know what to do. And mm. it can kind of transcend, uh, say, physical co-location. Like we don't have to be in the same you know, I, I don't have to be touching you to be tactful in our relationship. In fact, as we write in the paper, often <laughs> it's tactless <laughs> to be in touch. Right, right, right. You don't want me to touch you. You just send them like a little email, keep up to date on things. Right, yeah. like, you know, most people, when we think about them having tact, we're not talking about the way they like actually touch another human being, right? We're talking mm. about a, a kind of skillful handling of a situation in terms of the language you use and where you position yourself and all of that. Okay. So we want to say, well, then, you know, it seems um, this notion of tact, which is a kind of being in touch, right? But it's not, it doesn't demand physical contact. We can maybe leverage that in physical, in a virtual space, right? That's where it becomes the digital. That's where you get the digital. So, the and the, 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 the other part of that was there's a sense in which, like, also in these spaces like we've all just been shoved into them because of covid uh well right, at least more right. and more so we actually don't know what to do right but we're trying to figure out what to do and some people are better attuned to that like figuring out what to d what to do when they don't know what to do <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah and then thinking about all that's going on in the context that they might need to be sensitive to okay i was curious when i was thinking about that with the digital tact or just tact in general and I remember kind of like towards the end of COVID, there was a conversation with actually the same friend I play video games with. And he was talking about his younger niece where she was in like grade school, something like that. And we had a conversation about the younger generation and how they are going to possibly interact with kids mm. now with this forced digital world on them. Mm. And we were curious about how did COVID and going through the digital realm, also just growing in social media mm. and all of the aspects, more people are into gaming. I am curious how the next generation, how their tact or their EQ, mm. or even just due to COVID, do you think people's digital tact went up and then maybe their I guess, physical tact or just non-digital tact, do you think that lowered or do you think it stayed the same? If you had to guess, what do you think? It's a super interesting question. You're, you're actually the second person who kind of asked me that during in in this in this week. Yeah. Um, I think like as in real life. Let's say in real life, it's all real life. But as in say co <laughs> yeah. co-located interaction. <laughs> okay. Not everybody has tact. Right. That's or true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. People have tact to varying degrees. Some people are disposed to be, you know, awkward. tactful. Some people are a bit more awkward or, or, yeah. or whatever. And this is not a value judgment as such, right? <coughs> um, 
just as you know there's a whole in any say domain of skillful skillful action there's a whole kind of distribution of of that skill um so in these social online spaces um the fact that more people are in them more people are going to develop tact in them just by virtue of the the numbers right mm -hmm. and i think what happens there is that um people start those people who have that sensitivity anyway start to highlight for other people that there are norms in these spaces that there are expectations that like you know you need to take this into mind when you're in this space and whether or not like everybody starts from that place with time and with with uh, say development and, and the evolution of culture or whatever other people get taught about these uh say norms and so on so mm. i think on the whole there's a kind of a you know a rising tide that lifts some of the other uh, uh let's say uh skills of the other people who share those spaces even if they yeah. themselves are not like super tactful so i think over time yeah it's definitely going to uh increase in these spaces and the you know the 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 amount and distribution of these technologies insofar as it's growing is going to is going to welcome that but um whether or not that leads to like necessarily say something like better mental health or mm. um you know better social relationships per se i don't think i can say anything uh you know really meaningful about that i don't have the data or the kind of qualifications to say that properly but i mean our general sense is people with tact in these spaces uh tend to produce better experiences for themselves and others in these spaces so you know it seems obvious to say uh yeah it's going to be a better experience for people in them if more people have this kind of tact okay i thinking for myself thinking of my personal journey through covid going through digital meetings and things and or even just thinking about the big social media wave over the past decade i think when i first got out of covid lockdown my physical tact suffered quite dramatically uh, and i feel like there was a curve yeah uh for example uh, oh now i actually need to look somewhat presentable <laughs> for example you know you're used to just kind of sloppily like laying <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you're just on Zoom, you, know, you just like, literally woke up, you know, your hair's not done, you know, maybe you got like, I don't know, <laughs> crumbs around your face from breakfast, and like, or even like just thinking about your appearance, right? And then now, <clears throat> when that ended, and I was like, okay, time to go to real life meetings, sure. and I had to like, all right, let me make sure like my hair is clean. Mm -hmm. You know, for the first week, I... I don't know, I just, it was a little bit of kind of like, ah, and this is kind of annoying, you know, now I got to go back to this, sure, it's kind sure. of troublesome. And in addition to that, I'm curious if the rise in digital tact will possibly degrade normal in-person tact, just because there's this whole idea of like, oh, people are so used to interacting over the digital world, whether if it's introducing yourself to somebody or dating X, Y, and Z. Mm. I am curious if if it's going to be like a indirect relationship is as we get better digitally tactfully there's like AI 
software out there that's helping you reword emails and mm -hmm. text messages. I mean, is our in-person like communication and things of that gonna degrade? That's yeah. something that I, I can see, but you know, I wouldn't know exactly, but I could see that happening. Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of different things you said there. I never really thought about assisted tact until you just said about, like, you know, something assisting you write emails. Mm. Um, and that way, actually, you know, I might say, uh, you know, this person is in this type of situation and I want to write a tactful email and AI might help me do that. Yeah, they that's got it. They yeah, got that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, that maybe that's another another topic. I think the situation you described is interesting, right? Because under COVID, there was imposed uh, social restrictions by and large, right? You, you were expected to do, um, you know, to stay indoors, to not meet other people, to uh, avoid social interactions of a particular kind. And I think you're hesitancy when you come back out of that or your slight discomfort or dissonance or disattunement or whatever <laughs> yeah, or however you want to think about it your sloppiness <laughs> the crumbs in your <laughs> face <laughs> yeah um, i think that speaks to the fact that these are real and practice skills right and when we interact socially we don't appreciate just how skilled we are because we're all more or less kind of skilled and have like you know a lot of years in this in the practice of these skills and they just fade into the background, right? Mm. And what we saw when we kind of re-emerged from COVID was a lot of people <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I can't remember. I didn't remember this just living was so difficult, right? And yeah. <laughs> how much there was to put, kind of pay heed, heed to. Um, <clears throat> and that, that might have been true even if we had developed this, you know, relative comfort in digital spaces. Mm. Um, my kind of feeling is, Actually, we attune to all kinds of spaces, and there's uh, some sort of there's some sort of say generic rules or principles that might be or skills say that might be functional across spaces that they're kind of portable. Okay. But actually, a lot of a lot of spaces have their own norms, right? And we need to be sensitive to them. So even online, you might be tactful in one space and less tactful tactful in, in another, right? That is true. Um, yeah. Or at least say you might be better attuned to one and come across as more tactful and still be just trying to attune to another. Like if I if I joined you guys for your gaming session, games. I'd be like super awkward and probably bringing the mood down for a while anyway. Yeah, there's a culture. There's a culture, right? There is a culture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's definitely a gaming culture. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you weren't <laughs> there for a few months and you j rejoined again and you saw everything that was going on, you might be a, a bit more awkward or a bit slow on, on the uptake again. Mm. Um, so, you know, my feeling is like <laughs> these technologies are here to stay. They're probably increasing in, in a lot of regards. You know, the prevalence of remote working and all of these kinds of things seem to suggest that uh, more and more of our futures will be digitally mediated and i kind of feel like um the more we can say pay attention to the reality of say something like digital tech and the reality of the differences in these spaces and better attune to them and say this is a kind of technical word in in embodied cognitive science where we like incorporate 
or technology. And when we incorporate it, we kind of make it part of the background conditions too. And when we make it back part of the background conditions, we can kind of get on with the interaction itself, right? Mm. So like here, um, maybe, uh, you know, the more we did podcasts, the less we pay attention to the mics, right? right. And the more we're just present to each other. Mm. And in the same way in digital spaces, you know, the more we show up in these spaces, uh, the less we pay attention to all the mediating elements and we're just present to each other. And like, if you think about someone who's very unskilled in these spaces, my go-to is often my parents, unfairly. But Shouts out to the parents. They, it's like they have a very different relationship and have had a very different relationship to these kinds of technologies, right? They didn't right. grow up immersed in them or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so they're still engaged with the technology as a first layer very often before they're even in the interaction, right? Where in in a lot of these spaces already, we can kind of just get on to the interaction and not think about so much about the technology itself. Mm. And to the more the more we can do that I across a variety of digital spaces, the more they're going to feel comfortable, and and we're going to start to appreciate, you know, what is this space good for, what is it not good for, in the same way that we have figured out in say co-located interactions, uh, in physical space, let's say, that. Um, you know, a studio with this kind of, kind of walls is good for recording sound, right? right? It's an environment with a particular function or a lecture hall is good, you know, for its function or a church or a chapel is good for its function. There's some sort of recognition of what the needs are and what are we trying to serve and how are we using the digital environments and the things that we have the ability to modify in those environments to mm. serve those needs. That's interesting. The The first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, kind of like sending a message out to as many people as possible in the quickest way. For example, I'm thinking about... Uh, may, uh, so the first thing that comes to mind is now I see people, they will have either if it's like a Discord, a Slack mm. channel, or mm. maybe a WhatsApp group, and they will have one leader, and then they have maybe hundreds of people in that channel. And this allows that one leader to almost distribute a message to all these people efficiently, quickly, and there's no misinterpretation. While I'm thinking like in the past, let's say Martin Luther King, you know, to deliver this whole message, he had to gather all these people around, mm -hmm. he had to get on stage, and then he had to say something, and then people had to listen. Um, so I'm curious, like nowadays, let's say if there's a modern era Martin Luther King, you know, he could maybe use a tailor-made digital space that could deliver, maybe not, I don't know, I can't say if it's the same as powerful, but he could potentially deliver the message in a different environment that's maybe more tuned for reaching more people or something like that. That was one thing that came to my mind just off the top of my head on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, well, if we look at it, the digital spaces and how they are, say, how attention is monopolized in these spaces i mean um it's often not the martin luther kings who get attention unfortunately right Fair. it's people who are kind of uh generating hostility and um you know outrage and, and that kind of thing that tend to draw a lot of eyes often unfortunately um i don't know it's hard to yeah i mean there's so many 
kind of potential issues and sidetracks and sidelines in, wh in what you just said, but yeah, maybe it was the so many like the public space in the day of Martin Luther King was so much more valued and appreciated, and it was say a democratic and relatively uh, shared common ground for people in a society uh, to to all access right mm -hmm. and now there's there's so many public spaces that there's a kind of dilution of a lot of voices um, and you know often people are forced to be uh, I mean it's not it's not true that everybody has to be say bombastic or scary right. or whatever or, or you know negatively valenced in their yeah. message to get attention I mean people uh, do get attention for good things too but the spaces are so diluted it's yeah it's hard to say how to best uh, think about what would be the ideal kind of public space for those kinds of messages that's true that's true so before going to the the next topic I want to ask you uh, two questions so from your experience in the digital space going through COVID can you just tell me what was the thing that you loved and what was the thing that you hated about <laughs> the digital space Oh, that's interesting. And um, just to give you a quick one for myself, I love the fact of being lazy. <laughs> so, for example, the camera just captures maybe your shoulders. And, like, a lot of times I'm in pajamas. And I was lazy. I was convenient. And it was kind of socially acceptable to kind of, like, you could eat while you're having digital meetings. While, like, some meetings they don't want you to eat or drink. Right. I, I like that aspect. But I disliked the whole you you can't have side conversations that kind of like supplement the meeting sure because it's always just like one person talks and everybody listens you can't you could like do maybe a little private chat which people would do but like i couldn't while he's talking i couldn't say hey mark did you get the notes you know can you can you highlight this for me or sure, sure. those were the two things that i thought that were nice and then parts that i hated yeah that one the latter one shows up a lot for people that the desire for like i i was calling them kind of off stage interactions mm. you know where there's like some sort of central activity and then in the background you're whispering or even just glancing at somebody right to be like <laughs> is this is this person serious yeah, or whatever checking about, like, yeah you see this man <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me um that's i mean i think i enjoyed just the kind of diversity of exploration and more <laughs> hearing about the things that people were getting up to in these spaces <laughs> than actually been participant in them myself okay because <laughs> uh, I, I i think i'm i'm not super digitally disposed let's say okay uh, which might, might sound weird right when we're trying to like advocate for the the positive dimensions of these right spaces but yeah i did do quite a bit of like you know, working out with mates, um, say our old jiu-jitsu uh, coach just started doing uh, for free a kind of daily workout. And on we, Zoom? Yeah, or? on Zoom. Ah. We got involved in that for a while and that was super, super good and, you know, you felt like still connected to the club and all of that. Mm. We were playing poker, uh, me on and some Zoom? friends on Zoom. We found some, you know, again, it took us a while to find the right technology to, and, yeah. and, and everything that would kind of accommodate all of our needs but 
uh, yeah, we found some some software that we could easily play poker together. It's like those like iPhone games, or is it like something different? It was it was in the browser. Um, it's just a website in a browser, and we could all play remotely, and we could all just see whatever the the uh, tally was and everything. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, what else? I think yeah. I I mentioned my friend before who was um. He's like uh, in the Arts Council in Ireland and he oversees, the, he, he used to oversee the kind of festivals. So he was very attuned to all of the festivals that didn't happen and then migrated online. Um, and he shared a lot of interesting examples with me where, um, I mean, for, for instance, people were coming up with remote art exhibitions or like uh, different styles and uh say genres of art even where like they would for instance get people um to do a kind of participatory art but digitally mediated participatory art right where everybody shows up and then they get some sort of instruction and then they're told to go to some place in their community and once they're there to do something and then check back online and you know these kinds of things Uh, so all of that was interesting for me to hear I liked, um, did you hear about the rise of all these digital concerts? I uh, thought that was very neat. No, I didn't hear about it. I know that the people have been trying to do that for a while. but So, so I first came across this idea. Um, it was actually on the video game Fortnite. But okay. then I started seeing other artists. Um, I don't remember exactly the other big time artists. But the idea that they did on Fortnite is so first Fortnite's a game you have a level with a hundred players mm-hmm. normally you're just fighting each other right. but they had a special event where they would have a music artist marshmallow he's a dj and they would say all right you know you can't fight in the game but the map is open for like an hour show and then they would have a hologram of the dj actually like djing and it's almost like a immersive music video sure. where you're actually playing the avatar in the music video. But it's, it's like a concert. Right. And then they were saying, like, the benefits of this was that it was totally free. So people from around the world who did not have access to, you know, the certain cities that artists typically go to, they were able to experience the concert, which then allowed the DJ or artist to get a bigger crowd of followers. Mm. So it literally benefited both parties Mm. and on top of that there was another case for people who typically had like social anxieties and didn't like big crowds it allowed them to enjoy a social atmosphere where they can meet their friends Mm. online listen to a music that they really love Mm. and still kind of i know i can't say if it's the same feeling but like when they have the headphones on you can hear the music you know maybe it's similar it's not I wouldn't say it's like a music festival where you have people like, you know, bumping into you and mm. you actually feel the vibration inside your chest. Mm. But people really liked it because they were able to experience these music festivals that maybe somebody in one country would never be able to do so. Sure. Uh, so that was one thing that I actually thought was pretty nice and powerful during that time. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, so many examples of this kind of thing and people doing it, you know, to a pretty high standard. And again, that was partially what inspired some of the ideas in that paper and 
we noticed, um, you know, around the time of COVID, for instance, there was a, a conflict resolutionist, uh, and she's an academic called Priya Parker, um, and she had a book uh, called something along the lines of How We Gather, or The Art of Gathering, or something like that. And it had come out a year or two before COVID and then COVID struck. And um, she ended up getting a lot of people connecting with her and asking her. Uh, we were planning to have this gathering. I know you're like a gathering designer, let's say, event designer of sorts. Um, we don't want to cancel it. Can we do something online that's, mm. you know, equally interesting or whatever? And she took a bunch of kind of principles from her own work about, you know, what makes a good gathering anyway. Yeah. And then kind of thought about them or, or recontextualized them for um, for digital spaces and found that she was able to, you know, say, curate gatherings for people, whether it was a, like bar mitzvah or a birthday party or a graduation ceremony or whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, and do it in a way where people actually had a better experience reported having a better experience than they would have expected to have had they just done their own gathering anyway right interesting <coughs> so that's interesting yeah I, I can't remember all the principles if you want to check out what they are just look at her work prior parker but there's something like you know um, get people to commit and involve from the start right so before we even show up to the place i'm telling you what's going to happen and i'm getting you to make some active commitment like okay i'm going to prepare something for the gathering okay right you know maybe a potluck or something right so you have to start thinking about the gathering already yeah so already it's meaningful right and the question is how do you keep like layering on additional meaning um and maybe it's like once the gathering's in place everybody gets a role right Mm. um or you know there's some distribution of responsibilities or you know how do we introduce a certain type of tension, right? So we start playing certain types of games. All of these things, in in essence, are kind of generator functions for meaning. Mm. Um, and, yeah, in a sense, there's different types of meaning, obviously. Uh, but uh, I think what these people get skilled at is, like, being able, being tactful enough to be able to kind of introduce and design and configure these uh, digitally mediated interactions to support the generation of that kind of meaning but also then say facilitate the interaction as it's ongoing to mm. be able to acknowledge where maybe something is not going so well or where something is going well and needs to be more amplified um, and you know that's true in regular safe face-to-face spaces physical spaces uh, but now you know people are recognizing that this is also true in digital spaces and getting better and better and better at it like digital mediators right nice so now mark i want to go into this new idea that well it was new to me that you wrote in your paper and maybe can like shed some light on this idea Mm. so you go into details about the mixed reality interaction matrix Mm. the mrim and from what i was reading it was saying that it was it was a map of a set of reconfigurable, like, mediating components to shape the experience in a social interaction, mm. things of that nature. 
And then you had different guidelines of like different principles kind of help explaining it. Can you kind of give us a overview for the people listening? What is the MRIM and why is it even significant to note in your paper? Yeah, so I uh, co-authored this paper with uh, a colleague from the University of uh, University College Dublin, John Francis Leader. He's a friend and a longtime colleague. We both had the same PhD supervisor. Nice. Shout and out to him. Yeah, shout out John. <laughs> shout out Fred as well, shout uh, to you our, too, our supervisor. Uh, and this is his work. Nice. So when we were thinking about this kind of analysis and how how best to do it, um, we had a bunch of kind of frames and things through which to make this kind of assessment. Uh, and what we wanted to do was effectively ask, like, what are all the intersecting pieces? And we played around with a bunch of, like, say, uh, ways of decomposing what all those intersecting pieces was. Mm. And eventually se se settled on what John had done already previously as, say, the most elegant way to do this. So John is... Uh, a therapist but he's also like a, a real pioneer in the the kind of space of virtual uh, mixed reality therapy and he's interested in using virtual reality to support therapeutic interventions with clients and patients interesting <coughs> so this is work he had done um with a kind of pragmatic you know uh psychotherapeutic intention in mind right uh, and we kind of co-opted it for more philosophical purposes here uh, and asked okay if we look at something like a digital hug or say we look at a hug in general right um, is there some way we can kind of decompose it into its relevant constituent parts and looking through this matrix you get say a tree by tree grid and in the grid you get um, what we call reality conditions so physical virtual real, uh, sorry, imaginary, physical, virtual, imaginary, and interactional dimensions. Uh, so intrapersonal, so like I interact with myself, with my body, interpersonal, me and you interact, and extrapersonal, we're interacting with this environment. Okay. Uh, or the lo larger environment. And when you kind of intersect these, say, reality conditions with these interactional dimensions, you get this grid, and on each piece of the grid, you can kind of specify uh, some particular elements. So let me just look at the paper here and see what we got. Yeah. <laughs> so for instance, um, the one that was maybe most interesting is the physical interpersonal, right? Because when we think of a hug, normally what we think of is two people, right? So interpersonal, mm -hmm. physically connecting. Right, so that's one dimension. <clears throat> but what this helped to see is that that's just one dimension of even an in-person hug. In an in-person hug, you still have, say, eight out of nine dimensions left over to consider, right? So in an in-person hug, you will also have extra-personal physical features. So that might be like where the hug takes place, the kind of temperature of the room that you're in. Could it be like a cultural thing, like based I, off like, like when you said where? 
extra personal imaginary uh, extra personal virtual be more the kind of uh, cultural things okay so like what are the norms of the space you're in right mm. if it's like in japan say where it's less common to hug in person in public um it might feel very different than hugging in so say a culture or a country where it's perfectly permissible to hug mm. so but you're getting at exactly the right intuition yeah right? yeah <coughs> like all the little elements add up right and we might not think about this we just think about a hug as just a physical embrace but actually all of these other components are operative now that's interesting especially when you travel around and you know you're trying to you know be comfortable you don't want to hug somebody and then they're thinking you're you're up to no good right but no uh, yeah it's it is kind of interesting like you have these nine different variables and you almost automatically just kind of tune yourself without even thinking about it yeah right right and if you think about go back to the notion of tact right right tact is in some sense the ability to like even if you're totally not conscious of it tune all of these elements in a given situation to generate some sort of meaningful experience got it i got you i got you so the mrem just is functions like a map right if we didn't have this we'd just be like oh there's a few things going on right yeah let me just like throw a dart (laughs) to see where it lands right but when you have the map, you can kind of say, okay, what are what are the elements? Now, it could have been different. We could have included other stuff. You know, mm. it's a kind of infinite map if you really paid attention, <laughs> you know, getting into all the fine gray biology, right? Right. But um, it's, you know, what is the he- what is a helpful map? That's always a, a good question. Mm. Uh, so for us, this was a helpful map. And, you know, what it helped us see very clearly is that even though the interpersonal physical is not possible right now, let's say, in virtual spaces. Mm -hmm. All of the other ones are still perfectly possible, right? So all of the other elements that contribute to the experience of a good hug, let's say, even in face-to-face interaction, like eight out of nine are still possible in virtual environments and maybe even amplifiable given the kind of uh, functionality of a virtual environment. Like some of the things that, you can't do so easily in a uh, physical space. You can do more easily in a virtual space. So you can kind of turn up the volume on those pieces and therefore kind of introduce more meaning to kind of compensate for the absence of physical interaction. Hmm. No, I, I can see that, actually. I think even just from my experience or from some of my other friends' experience, I do know whether if it's like, like shyness, let's say they want to be more physical, and giving hugs mm. and then outside the virtual space they just don't have either the confidence or whatever to go up and let's say give somebody a hug mm. but then once they're behind the virtual space they can i know they, they start feeling good about themselves just yeah, because of whatever avatar super and, interesting yeah yeah and then they're more willing to physically or, or virtually in that space you know go up and be more open and more social things of that nature this is a a real strong point and one that shone true in our research so so we didn't really mention it but a lot of say like i talked at the start about you know having ideas from having experiences yeah uh, and you know some of the ideas coming from that but when i got to oist and we started working on um the project that I was here to work on, which initially was a video chat interaction project 
where we were going to modify the vi the various components that are operative in a video chat experience mm. and see how the kind of meaning of the experiences changes. Long story short, we never got to do that because we couldn't get human subjects during COVID and all the rest. Yeah, that, yeah. So we ended up, what I did end up doing, we, we had this uh, corpus of data that was collected at a couple of points uh, during COVID from uh, over 2,000 or somewhere in the region of 2,000 people in Japan, uh, the UK and Mexico. Um, and there was a question in there about people's experiences using digital technology during COVID and during social restrictions. And we saw that um, there was a lot of people who hadn't even been prompted uh, who were suggesting that, you know, one of the things they missed the most was this ability to uh, hug another or to interact physically with another. And, um, but what we also saw was kind of what you were speaking to, right? That there was um, other people who were like, uh, for people in my type of situation, say they were uh, physically disabled or maybe socially anxious or uh, maybe uh, non, say, neurotypical or whatever, uh, neurodivergent, sorry, uh, that a lot of these types of people were saying, we've never had such a good social life because these spaces can accommodate our diversity in ways that, say, more generic, um, co-located physical spaces don't tend to. And I think, you know, in the most optimistic view or vision of what's possible with the kind of uh, diversity of spaces that we now have, right? We can just accommodate more people right. <laughs> more happily. Like, that's not necessarily happening and it's not necessarily going to happen. But it seems like a possibility that's more present given a diversity of digital and physical spaces. And, you know, again, our hope with kind of doing this kind of work is to point to those types of things and get people thinking about those types of things. I like that. Yeah, because even like you said, not only does it include maybe people who might find things a little bit more difficult in the physical space, mm -hmm. It also does make it easier to include people who are just physically not there. And sure. that's why it was kind of nice where this kind of then goes into the whole idea of you know, working from home. Right. And I like the idea. And this actually kind of created like a whole new cultural shift where like, I mean, depending on the country, I think some companies are still allowing people to work from home now. And it's mm -hmm. just the norm. And, you know, either if you agree with it or not, you know, some people find the benefit of it because of just well-being and that now this new variable allows new ways of working, which I think it's actually beneficial and also it could potentially allow people with like really incredible talents to find opportunity because now they're accepting people from all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I think, I think those are also some of the cool benefits that the, the virtual world and the virtual communication style is really bringing into place. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I see it, you know, like <coughs> anything, right? There's trade-offs and costs and benefits and all of that needs to be considered. But yeah, just to focus on the, say, positive dimensions for the time being, like I see it in my own, in my own life. Um, I've been able to maintain relationships, romantic relationships, let's say at a distance that would have been very difficult uh, yeah. prior to this. Also, um, you know, I see it with my brother who's 
got a kind of hybrid working situation. He's got a, you know, he's got a, a bunch of young babies and he's able to spend at least a couple of days a week at home with them where previously he would have had to be gone all the time. Um, Ireland, I'm from Ireland, uh, so I'm kind of sensitive to the situation there, but, you know, Ireland is trying to uh, encourage a lot of this kind of working from home situation and obviously, well, maybe not so obviously, but Ireland is a kind of tech tech hub, let's say, and um, a lot of that say tech talent and therefore money and economics and 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 all of that was confined to a few few uh, centralized locations but now people are say spreading out around the country a bit more and you're getting a lot more uh, better distribution and say reinvigoration of some of the smaller and local towns that uh, since say 2008 were really crippled um mm. Fi- financially, economically, <coughs> culturally, everything, right? Uh, so, yeah, you know, these things are always evolving and whatever, but there does seem to be a few positive trends opening up because of this nice. kind of remote capacity. So I want to also go on to get your opinion on, you were writing about, or you brought up the idea of, like, digital push. Yes. About the idea of kind of, like, almost being pushed into this digital kind of aspect and now people are kind of getting into this working from home kind of thing do you think there was any negative i guess consequence of being pushed into the digital world sure loads i so think what's the first that comes to <coughs> mind i think the the f- the reality that it's so unevenly say accommodated like some people were able to say absorb the push Right, me and you say we've grown up with some sort of principled understanding of the interface of a digital, say, device like a computer, such that we understand how it's organized in a way that we can engage with it fluently um, and kind of navigate that. And then that kind of extends to our phones, right? And mm. You know, in a way, like we we're saying early on, where you develop skills and then they go into the background, uh, it's easy for us, let's say, digital natives, to forget just how much knowledge is required for us to do the kinds of what seem like relatively basic functions. And <clears throat> another paper we had written uh, prior to this, or at least it came out prior to this, was looking at um, you know emotional dysregulation in. Uh, digital communication uh, online and what you see is um, well there's a bunch of factors that are relevant there so we pointed to five factors where um, you can look at infrastructure right like infrastructure tends to be quite unevenly distributed right and when everything is pushed online now the people with the poor infrastructure are expected to keep up but they can't quite keep up. That was an issue, yeah. That's sh- sure, a huge yeah. issue. Uh, and, and, you know, that's true in the distribution between, say, rural and uh, urban spaces in any given country. It's also true in the distribution between, say, uh, I mean, the global north and the global south and, yeah. you know, poorer and more economically developed nations and so on. Um, <coughs> so... That's one, but then even if you have the infrastructure, 
do you have the kind of functional capacities just to use the basic technology? Not that's that's totally un, unevenly distributed too. Um, and then there's uh, you know we 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 outlined a, a couple more uh, pieces where you have like are you able to mindfully design your relationship to these technologies? That's a whole like skill set too, right? Are you mm. able to do that also in relationship to the social life you live online? Another skill set, and then digital tech kind of comes back in here as well. Do you have digital tech or the people you're engaging with have digital tech and uh, <clears throat> you know all of those factors have the potential to disrupt or dysregulate your life and some of them in in really drastic ways right some people have really horrible experiences online um, and i think the digital push just you know it's it was a push right it pushed a lot of people into situations where uh, they weren't equipped to be able to adapt to it in the way that say your average uh, I don't know 20 to 35 year old knowledge worker now is equipped <laughs> right and yeah yeah I get you and we just kind of <laughs> are blind to the realities of a lot of those people and I think for those people it was, it was even more stressful there's a weird kind of precipice right if you just ignore it you're fine right so like <laughs> I mean yeah you could yeah but I feel like you lose Maybe some of the luxuries. That yeah, it has. but if you just don't care about them, right? Yeah, <laughs> like I, I have, I know people who are just like, I, I don't I, need I, it. I, I don't need it. Don't think about it, <laughs> and they live perfectly fine lives. Like if you're that, you're good. If you're okay. kind of on the precipice of like, I should be good at this, or I should, or <laughs> I, I want to be it. You know, that's when you run into issues. Yeah, you, you got to either be all in or not even in at all. Yeah, but it, like it's true though that even even if you. Um, even if you don't want to be, so much stuff is ever more demanding that you do, right? Whether the push gets greater. Yeah, the push, is, the push is greater and the, you know, it makes previous technologies and norms and ways of doing things redundant. So you kind of are forced to keep up in some sense. You know, mm. I'm just thinking about, I don't know, filing your taxes or something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The more that, that <laughs> stuff goes online, you know, you have to develop some sort of literacy and for some people that's that's difficult yeah even thinking about i remember talking to some co-workers about giving their first zoom mm. either if it was a lecture or a meeting and it, there's always like you know this learning curve depending on who they are of like oh you know how do i connect a bluetooth to my computer and then you, you know go over that or mm. or even like you know, setting up the webcam, for example. You know, not many people have even used the webcam. Sure. But, um, but yeah, I guess I'm curious if this digital push is going to be so great that, I mean, essentially, even for the people that don't want to be involved, the push is literally saying, if you're not involved, you just can't be part of society anymore. Yeah, in a certain regard, yeah. Yeah, like... Um, I don't know, let's, like, if an example was if we were to go down this way of uh, digital currency, mm. and then let's say people want paper-based, and then they have to learn how to set up all their banking on, the, well, first they have to get a smartphone or some kind of device, and then figure out how to set it up on there with this whole face recognition and all that stuff. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm curious if there is going to be a point where there is no other option. There's no more cash-based money or there's no more in-person meetings you have to learn how to do it digitally or you just don't do it at all yeah i mean 
probably in some places right but yeah. I, I feel like we really do value i mean that's another thing we we you know as as good as you can get at digital tact you still appreciate meeting people co-located yeah that's true you know and the, the i think the narrative and the the kind of binary of one replacing the other um unless there's a bunch of other conditions that are forcing that um whatever they may be economic conditions or whatever i think that general narrative of replacement is not that helpful right and we we have to think about mutual empowerment like what is um how can we use these spaces intelligently in our lives to mm -hmm. support the kinds of needs and desires and wants that we have and that we have for each other and the planet and how can we uh yeah resist their more destructive tendencies and you know like with any technology right these things take a while to kind of settle in and for us to appreciate and for us to notice that you know something is going to rye over here or, uh you know understand how how to address it and so on um <coughs> you know then you i mean there's you know there's other i i, I don't think i'm like well positioned to speak to all of the you know concerns around ai and and all of that but um yeah i i just tend to be a bit skeptical about any of the kind of grand narratives about technology whether they're you know utterly kind of pessimistic or you know excessively optimistic mm. um you know where human beings having to reckon with very human problems and right. our technologies are probably not going to free us from those problems anytime soon yeah. i'm probably not going to make them well hopefully not you know, so much, much, much more worse either. Yeah, I will hope that would be the case. So then let me ask you one of the last questions then that I have for you. So after your experience of putting this together and having this understanding of tact in the digital space and kind of how to categorize these different variables or aspects of what it is to get a hug what do you think was the biggest picture that you learned after you finished this, you completed it? Hmm. What was probably the most groundbreaking thing that you thought about and kind of took away from this? Groundbreaking? I'm not sure. <laughs> if uh, not groundbreaking, but I guess something that yeah, you the hold kinda, on to. Yeah, the take home for me. Yeah. I think the, yeah, the real take home for me was that we don't take these things seriously enough and just how much of a shaping function our technologies play in our lives. Mm. Like there are, say, philosophies of technology, and there have been for a long time, but it's long been a kind of relatively niche, remote corner <laughs> of the f world of philosophy. And even within our own discipline, which has tended to be quite forward-looking in body cognitive science, um, tended to be, you know, sensitive to the present moment forward-looking uh, ambitious all of that i think even there there was a huge blind spot to uh, the presence and function of these technologies in our lives and i think yeah you know uh, there's a there's a there's a uh, theorist i guess uh, dave snowden who, who also says like y it's very hard to change people but you can quite easily change interactions which in turn change people um interesting and if you can change 
the technologies that shape those interactions uh, in turn you change people in, in very uh, profound ways so you know the thing maybe that I walk away with is like a sensitivity to just how powerful the shaping effects of technology are through their their influence on how we interact with each other uh, and also the 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 kind of maybe opportunity that exists there right uh, because what we are in some sense getting direct access to when we when we devise these technologies is um a, a kind of mediating force within the ongoing interaction for human beings so uh yeah that's a powerful realization maybe and uh, a powerful responsibility for people who are engaged in building these technologies i think th there's a, a you know there's a lot of uh, overconfidence and and kind of a you know a, a hubris that people often bring to like engineering and design of technologies and um for me maybe rather than seeing another digital push i'd i'd like to see generally a kind of digital slowing down <laughs> maybe and yeah like, I, I can understand that you know a sense yeah. of uh, and i know this has been kind of called for in the in the ai space too and i i, I kind of welcome it like what are we trying to optimize for if we're just trying to optimize uh, to win at the competition that we're already playing um i don't know we're just you know i don't know the the kind of uh let's say we're getting we're getting better at uh keeping up with the the kind of conveyor belt but as we get better the conveyor belt just keeps getting faster right yeah i agree i think that's that's just sadly the game yeah it's it seems to be and you know i don't want to be i want to resist the fatalism that just says well <laughs> that's just the way it is right yeah that's yeah because <laughs> it's not the way it is everywhere and it needn't be the way it is and you know maybe yeah interesting <laughs> you know the notion of tact is interesting in a way right because it's 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 not about like uh in a way it's about it's about relationship right mm -hmm. and it's about uh what does this situation need as a whole it's not about me in this situation as such right and maybe there's a kind of a ecological tact that's necessary too when we think about uh you know the design of our technologies or just a kind of yeah why not yeah let's say a digital tact right when we think about designing technologies how are these technologies supporting the relationships that they will mediate and i don't just mean the kind of interactions between the people who are in them but like they're also in a context in a wider world mm. you know and the more we can kind of get people thinking in relational terms like that and about how their bodies are, you know, at the center of these relations. Right. I think that's a, maybe a, a good takeaway. I wonder if it's going to be difficult when, if you're trying to design technology for human tech. Uh, reason why I think it could be difficult is just because of the evolution of technology, for example, like... The, the smartphone was built, or uh, the phone, I mean, was just built to have a phone call. Mm. But then now, even though we call it a smartphone, it's maybe 1% a phone. Sure, sure. You know, That's so like, yeah. or like same for YouTube, where it was built to be like a 
oh, here's a video of my child graduating, and then you share it to your family. <laughs> and then, like, everybody shares on a platform. Right. But, I mean, now the news is on there, the sports, live, you know, it, it's television. Sure. And, like, I mean, I, I couldn't have predicted that, but, like, now it's being used for a totally different reason right. of when it initially launched. Yeah, that's, I mean, no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, no, it just seems like the human creativity makes it so hard to predict how a device is going to be used. Totally. I mean, you know, with any invention, right, there's first, second, third, fourth, fifth order effects, right? The invention yeah. it, it produces a feedback loop within a culture, within human minds that, um, you know, starts to take it in directions that were unintended, right? The classic example of, like, uh, cars uh, and the and, uh, and the petrol engine was invented to um, address a situation in london where there was too much horse shit on the streets <laughs> right and you know a century later and you have uh, cl- you know climate crisis on your hands right because right? of the horses man <laughs> too much to clean <laughs> so like you know it's totally in- inforeseeable or unforeseeable but I, do- I don't think that shouldn't i don't think that like we should adopt a fatalism in view of that. I think you can still ask, uh, you know, there and there are people doing this, and this is part of my own work too, which we didn't, you know, get get into at all. But like, we we need to get better at foreseeing, like, what are the first, second, third, That's fourth. That's tough. That to is do. tough for sure. Um, but I mean, some things are more more obviously. Uh, to have negative benef- <laughs> outcomes and and positive outcomes and so on yeah um but just to say it's tough doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't attempt it right yeah it's just like like when i think of myself since so i like creating like inventions and things and it, it's just more so of like i mean there's just so many humans and so much creativity out there it's impossible to Sure. It's impossible. And just like, I mean, the the devices just take a life of their own. And mm-hmm. like, I mean, the big example is just the smartphone where like, who knew that the smartphone would be like one of the biggest platforms for dating, mm-hmm. you know? And like, I would have never have guessed, but that's, I don't know. That's it's, it's just wild. So I guess that's where like, I guess the evolution and, you know, keeping up with it and maybe altering it and things of that nature. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, we we still we have to remember that it's it's people who are doing this stuff, right? Yeah, and it's people within communities and within nation states that have regulations, and you know, we've seen a lot of the excesses of, I don't know, like, uh, you know, in Europe there was the whole I forget the name of it, um, but there's a whole kind of, you know, committee set up around data extraction, and then there was regulation brought in, and all of a sudden people had to, you know pull back on some of the kind of data scraping or whatever they do. Uh, Mm. So, you know, it's always this kind of dance where you have, I don't know, a lot of innovators and corporations and everything trying to like, I don't know, maximize profit within a certain space of time when they know that the window is open and then you have the regulatory bodies kind of coming in the wake of that and trying to like um, dampen some of the excesses there and, and mitigate some of the externalities and, um yeah i don't know it, it's interesting i mean we uh, you know we talk as if there's no ceiling on this stuff either 
right? Like that it's just gonna. That's fair. Yeah. We're just eventually gonna, <laughs> you know, encounter the singularity and upload our minds to the cloud and all of that. And you know, that's, soon. <laughs> that's <laughs> another discussion, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, maybe there is a ceiling on this. Maybe uh, I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to be the one who predicted <laughs> it, and then we just blow through it. So I'm not gonna make that prediction. But uh, you know, I suppose the the future is open ended. I like that. That's good. That's good. So then to finish, I mean, do you prefer digital hugs or physical physical hugs better? Fidgetal hugs. That's a new word. That's a new word. That you, <laughs> hey, that, that was a mistake, but feel free to point it. Fidgetal. I like it. <laughs> fidgetal hugs. Just, fidgetal, just, fidgetal. Just give credit where credit's due, man. Yeah, just, yeah, no, yeah. No, but to, which do you prefer, physical or virtual? Oh, that's a mean question to leave me with because, like, I much prefer uh, physical hugs, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, we wanted to say it's not about replacement. It's just about if we're going to be acting in these spaces anyway, mm. how do we tune ourselves so that they're more meaningful than they might presently be? Okay. And it's not about it's not about a competition. Uh, okay, that's a good all way to okay. hugs. Yeah. You, know, you, welcome you welcome all the hugs. All the hugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. That should be a t-shirt. Not all of them, but most of them. All the welcomed hugs, I welcome. welcome. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a t-shirt idea. <laughs> and I definitely welcome fidgetal hugs. Fidgetal hugs, yeah. which is like, I, I can't even imagine it, but run with it. Let me, <laughs> let me know what, what you think of that. There, there. is a, ro- a hugging robot somewhere in Denmark. Uh, that's kind of maybe fidgetal. But that's for another <laughs> okay. conversation, too. Well, that's interesting. Okay, then, so let's stop there. So then... For the people listening, so this is Stephen Estelle, as I mentioned, the founder and CEO of Estelle Ingenuity. So that podcast is going to be on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as YouTube. And then for Mark, for any new listeners, would you like to show them where they can reach you at and maybe find your paper as well? Yeah, you'll find the paper online. It actually got a lot of uh, a press around the place. So if you just type in Do Digital Hugs Work, you'll find either the paper itself or some somebody reporting on the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can find the podcast it's it, the podcast is pretty slow on my end at, at this stage just with other priorities but it's you find it in all your podcast platforms but it's uh, connectomics c-o-n-n-e-c-t-o-m-i-c-s um, and it also goes out on the oist podcast feed as well so mm. you'll find it there too um jack come over if you know any of the stuff i was talking about seems interesting uh that's kind of you know some of the some of the discussion we have on on my podcast so um or you can just connect with me online on linkedin mark james you'll find me there or mostly on twitter or my email is mark.james at oist.jp awesome and then for myself my name is steven estelle and feel free to visit estelleingenuity.com if you want to get in contact with myself as well so with that being said it was a pleasure doing this interview that was good it was good fun thank you taking off from there see you see you brother